This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. In the next 19 seconds, you could sell your home. Okay, it's, I mean, it's not going to sell your home, I mean, this, but it, you're going to take a big step toward getting it sold. Go to realestateagentsitrust.com and find an agent selected by my team, a professional who shares your values and speaks the truth. Sell your home fast and for the most money. Get moving at realestateagentsitrust.com. Glenn Beck, The Blaze Radio Network. Sexton here in for Glenn today on the Glenn Beck program. Thank you so much for joining. Great to have you here. Uh, 888-727-BECK. Do give a call. We can chat about all kinds of stuff. A lot to discuss today. First off, you've got a meeting that already the media is circling the wagons and, and trying to tell you there's nothing to see here and they want the whole thing to just go away. They, they don't want to talk about this much. Uh, and it is, of course, Loretta Lynch, the sitting current attorney general uh, of the United States in a meeting with president Bill, pardon me, former president Bill Clinton in uh, Arizona that happened on Tuesday. Now, look, there's a lot of ways that you're going to see this reported. First of all, the the press will sometimes just decide they're going to give you whatever the relayed talking points are. They're going to give them to you as though they're fact. They say, well, I mean, this was a, this was an impromptu meeting. And clearly, um, my sources have told me, sources being people who work in the White House, who work for (laughs) Barack Obama, the Democrat administration, and some of whom probably want to work in a Clinton administration, sources say that they did not discuss anything other than their, they, officially they're saying here their grandchildren. Uh, What else, what else is on the list of, of things that they discussed? Oh, I don't know. Grandchildren, best place to get a burger, you know, yoga, whatever. So that's what they're telling us. Um, and you have the, the attorney general who, as you know, is the final say in whether or not there will be some kind of charge brought against Hillary Clinton for the email situation. So you have the attorney general of the United States who currently has investigators, the FBI, that have to respond to her, meeting with Bill Clinton, the husband of a woman who is currently in the middle of a federal investigation for mishandling classified. But there's nothing, there's nothing to see. There's no problem. There's nothing you need to be worried about here. They just want you to know that. It's all fine. I had some fun before. Where was this one? On, on Twitter, you had uh, former Obama consigliere. Uh, he came out, what was it? Um, David Axelrod. He said, I take Loretta Lynch and Bill Clinton at their word that their convo in Phoenix didn't touch on probe, but foolish to create such aspects. I don't take them at their word, and it's not just about the optics. Uh, But you have to love this now. This is 
our, our media is so happy to be gullible when it's for their team. It's like, oh, well, you know, I don't think that there's anything going on here. Just, you know, just a little chat, a little friendly chat about grandchildren. I mean, who wouldn't get on a plane when Bill's like, I've got a plane that's waiting right there. I mean, just come on over. Come on and hang out. Come on, take a, take a ride on Bill Clinton's plane. So that's what happened. He uh, had a 30-minute long chat with her. That's what they say. Uh, and they didn't discuss anything about whether his wife will face federal criminal charges. It never came up. It was a private meeting. There's nobody there to confirm or deny what was said, but it would never come up. I thought the appearance of impropriety was bad enough. I thought we had to be concerned just about that. I think this appears pretty improper, one would think. But you should just be prepared for this. You should be prepared for an administration uh, coming up here if Hillary Clinton does in fact win, where the lies just get increasingly brazen and the media either covers or finds some way of pretending to be really stupid and really gullible because it's useful. So, you know, I just sort of thought that, you know, the Clintons could be trusted. You know, what's the problem? Yes, the Clintons can be trusted. Uh, this is also why, by the way, all the stuff we're seeing about the emails, the investigations into it, all the rest of that, I, I don't think they'll result in charges because you have Loretta Lynch with final say on this. And do any of you really think that there's a world that exists where the Obama administration's sitting attorney general decides that she will allow for charge when it's, it is up to her discretion, prosecutorial discretion. She will allow for charges to be brought against the Democrat front runner. And if you believe Nate silver over at uh, five thirty eight blog, what does she have an 80, 80% chance, give or take a couple of points of becoming the next president. He also thought Trump, I think had a 5% chance of winning the Republican nomination. So I'm not sure you should take that to the bank, but nonetheless, you see where I'm going with this. It's just not likely at all that anyone's going to, from anywhere in the Democrat power structure, they're going to decide to press charges against Hillary Clinton for this. Keep in mind, they didn't press charges against Bill for lying under oath. The guy lied. It couldn't have been more flagrant. He lied under oath. It was as obvious as obvious can be. But, you know, now he's just a humanitarian. He just loves everybody. Hey, ladies. So you have uh, also Huma Abedin, by the way, Hillary Clinton's longtime uh, confidant. Uh, she has been uh, deposed. Uh, she has given uh, official statements under oath in court now uh, about the email server. And I just thought this was fascinating since we're talking about you, you see, they already have the top cover. It's already in place, right? Attorney General meeting with Bill. You know, it was said, I'm guessing in that meeting. Don't don't worry about it. And. In a couple of years, when Loretta Lynch is sitting on the board of the Clinton Foundation somewhere, everyone's going to say, gosh, you know, who could have seen this coming? I, I, I guess she just was really, really interested in making the world a better place and helping out with all the Clinton Foundation's wonderful causes. But I'm sure that it was made very clear to Bill in that meeting. Don't worry about it. Make sure Hillary can just focus on becoming the next president. We got this thing. This whole email thing is going to go away. Come out with some sort of report at the end. Blah, blah. Talked to a lot of people. Very thorough investigation. James Comey, like FBI Boy Scout. Everything's good. We got this covered. No charges. Nothing wrong with what Hillary did. That's what they really want you to believe. That's what they're going to suggest and all this stuff. But you have Huma Abedin out there. 
And she is the seventh, according to the New York Times here. It's always interesting to see the New York Times version of the Hillary email scandal. It's like they're on the front lines of the pro-Hillary propaganda war. Uh, seventh of eight aides and department officials who have given sworn testimony now in a legal proceeding brought by Judicial Watch. And they're looking into the email server situation. And Abedin has testified, uh, this, this just happened this week. Uh, that there was nothing strange about what Hillary Clinton did at all. There's nothing weird. There's no problem. It was just about keeping her private emails private, like anybody else would. That's the story now. Well, initially, the story was that it was for convenience, right? Didn't want to use multiple devices. That's what we call a lie, because that wasn't the motivation. Right? That's not true. Um, but the media won't say the, they won't say that. They won't say lie. They'll come up with some other means of discussing this. They'll say that it was, uh, it's an evolving situation. It's very complicated. There's a lot of, a lot of moving pieces. That's one of my favorite dodges here. It's a lot of moving pieces in all of this. Uh, but she says that they, she just wanted to keep it, uh, keep the private private. That's kind of funny because if you wanted to keep the private private, wouldn't you just use your state department email address and then have a, you know, Gmail or hotmail or AOL. Don't want to leave anybody out. AOL email address. Uh, and, Use that for your private personal emails. Nobody cares. No one's going to, there's nothing in your personal emails that's a problem if it were to be hacked or somebody finds it out, unless you are conducting official business, unless, I don't know, you are trafficking in classified information over an unsecured email account, over an unsecure server that you yourself set up when you could just set up an email address. So it's just not, again, they report this and they're hoping he'll just read and go, yeah. Yeah, it was just about keeping the private private. That's why she went and set up a private email server, a personal email server in her home. Or I'm sorry, Bill had already set it up. She used it. And then at one point it was based out of a closet. I think it was in Colorado. I can't even remember now. That's because it was just so hard for her to use Gmail like a normal person for her yoga schedules. That's what she said, yoga schedules. They're lying to your face over and over. And the media... All of that curiosity that they have sometimes, the curiosity they certainly have about Republican presidential candidates and the ferocity that they now show in their cross-examinations of Donald Trump whenever they get the opportunity now, or just the constant bashing of the Republican nominee on every show that they possibly can all the time, you'll notice that that's not apparent here. That, uh, that is not happening the same way. Because anybody who looks at the situation honestly and thinks to themselves, well, hold, hold on a minute. This, this, this looks, there's, no, there's no reason for Loretta Lynch and Bill Clinton to have a 30-minute meeting. I mean, come on. Oh, they just, they just happened to bump into each other on the tarmac. There's no coordination here. And then if I bring this up, you know what they'll say to me? You know, the, the MSM, the mainstreamers out there in the media, they'll say, well, you know, I spoke to sources. Yeah, you spoke to White House sources. Or you spoke to sources in the Clinton campaign or the Clinton Foundation. You think they're going to tell you the truth? Oh, but, you know, you can't prove that. No, I can't prove that, but I'm not an idiot. Oh, they, they just happen They just happen to bump into each other on the tarmac in Arizona. Okay, m- maybe, maybe, that ha- maybe that's true. But did they have to do a 30-minute sit-down out of earshot of everybody, given what's going on right now? Really the height of a presidential campaign, and she is in the midst of an F. It's not a security probe. It is a criminal investigation. FBI doesn't do security probes. If he doesn't assign a hundred guys to be like, well, can we uh, break into uh, Mr. Uh, Whittlethorpe's house? Let's do a security probe and see. 
That's not how it works. It's not what they do. So this meeting, you're supposed to believe nothing was discussed, nothing happened. You've got former, really the most senior Clinton aides, uh, Hillary Clinton aides, that is, testifying and saying things about her, the whole email setup that were ridiculous. And then, of course, they just always forget the why. And I've said it to you before, but I think it's important to keep a focus on the why because now you'll notice there's been a shift. We're told that inevitability is really the Hillary story now. They didn't want it to sound inevitable before because that also very quickly can turn into entitled. If you're inevitable for an office, your sort of sense of entitlement can creep in pretty quickly in people's minds. So they've decided to jettison that. Now Hillary is, in fact, inevitable. She's the only choice, the only one who is qualified, to use one of the words they like to throw around here. At the heart of this whole email situation is a very basic fact. The Clinton Foundation is really just a corporation pretending to be a charity. The Clinton Foundation is a means for expanding the influence of the Clintons politically and financially while pretending to do good work for the rest of the world and pretending to deserve accolades for all kinds of humanitarian efforts and all the rest of it. And the email separation was a necessary security mechanism in Hillary's mind that she almost entirely got away with, by the way, were it not for a hacker and the Benghazi investigation, we wouldn't really know much of anything about this. All of this done so that Clinton could keep control of the record because if people saw the kinds of requests that were being made of her while she was Secretary of State, if they had full access to the kinds of dealings and meetings she had while she was the most senior diplomat of the United States government in charge of international relations, second only to the president, they might be disgusted. The American people might just have a little bit of a sour feeling in their stomachs if they really knew what happened here. The media doesn't want that to happen. Media doesn't want them to know the truth. And so you see the way this story is told. It's just always... Well, we'll hold back a little bit here. We're just, we're not certain. Well, we've talked to sources, sources that tell us that all this conspiracy stuff about the Clintons is really overblown. It, it was just, it was for convenience. Oh, no, we can't say that anymore. Um, there was no classified. Oh, no, we can't say that anymore. Well, it was only low-level classified. Nope, can't say that anymore. And it's not actually a criminal investigation. Whoopsie, also not true. This is your supposedly, according to the media, inevitable next president of the United States. There's still time to vote for somebody else. We'll see if that actually happens. 888-727-BECK-BUCK-SEXTON in for Glenn. Much more coming. Stay with me. In the next 19 seconds, you could sell your home. Okay, it's, I mean, it's not going to sell your home, I mean, this, but it, you're going to take a big step toward getting it sold. Go to realestateagentsitrust.com and find an agent selected by my team, a professional who shares your values and speaks the truth. Sell your home fast and for the most money. Get moving at realestateagentsitrust.com. 
727 back. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Buck Sexton here in for Glenn today on the Glenn Beck Program. 888-727-BECK is the number. Whenever you start talking about the Clintons, you quickly can find yourself feeling like you've done a cannonball into a, into a sewage tank. You know, you're, you're just covered. It's everywhere. You can't escape it. It's all around you. Um, I was talking to you before about Judicial Watch and its efforts to try to find out more about the server situation uh, with Hillary Clinton. But there's there's more. Uh, now you have Citizens United which has been turned into a sort of boogeyman by the left, right? Citizens, all the money in politics. Yeah, because Democrats hate money in politics. It's ridiculous. But this is, a, this is something that gets, gets people on the left fired up. Oh, it's the money in politics. We'll talk more about their version of this, by the way, and how they want to control the conversation politically in just a few minutes. Uh, but Citizens United is trying to get access to Clinton's State Department schedulers, emails now you might say to yourself who cares Ooh, sleepy can't handle that one i was i was supposed to be me snoring but it kind of just sounded like me snorting um nonetheless you might think to yourself what does it matter about the state department scheduler i mean that's kind of boring stuff what if as citizens united believes is the case here and they have already gotten a federal judge judge rosemary collier uh, to agree with them, at least up to this point on the federal records case, what if Hillary's scheduler was keeping an off-the-books schedule for her so that she could meet with Clinton Foundation donors while she was supposedly on government business? Now, again, this isn't this isn't a topic that necessarily is going to you know blow all your hair back on your head. I mean, you're not, it's not necessarily going to get you all riled up, but think about this for a moment. A, se- a separate schedule, too? She's a secretary of state. She's not like your local dog catcher. No offense to dog catchers. You guys do a good job and have integrity. Uh, but she's a very important government figure in this period. We're talking about the four years she was secretary of state for the Obama administration. She was keeping a secret schedule, too? Or what other secrets can we really uncover? What else is out there that we need to know about? You got a secret email system, secret email server, maybe now a secret schedule. Why not? Why not? Uh, so if she was on government time and meeting with people and hiding it from the public, I think the public should know about that. Um, in this piece, hat tip Brendan Bordelon at National Review for bringing this to our attention. He writes, as part of a joint filing with the State Department on Monday, Citizens United presented the judge with several pieces of evidence suggesting uh, Val Moro, the scheduler, the State Department scheduler, deliberately struck from the official schedule a December 6th, 2012 dinner in Dublin, Ireland with several Clinton Foundation and Clinton campaign donors organized by a Teneo co-founder named Declan Kelly. Uh, though Val Moro was made aware of the Dublin meeting through an earlier email chain, neither Clinton's archive daily calendar nor her detailed office schedule make any note of it. Teneo, of course, is the consulting firm that the Clinton Foundation just created to pay people as, quote, consultants. It's just cronyism. This is the the Secretary of State keeping a secret schedule so that people can't see who she's meeting with. If it's not a problem, why the secret schedule? You know, this is the most basic stuff. I mean, those of you who know, who work in law enforcement or law enforcement, your family know exactly what I'm talking about. The truth is easy. The truth is straightforward. The truth isn't hard. 
when you got to go through all these gymnastics and jump through all these hoops and come up with all this stuff, that's when people start to ask questions. Nobody cares who Hillary Clinton meets with when she's Secretary of State unless they should. And if they should, well, she obviously doesn't want them to know about it. And that's where you start to get into this circle of lies. All right. 888-727. Back. Buck Sexton in for Glenn. Much more coming. Stay with me. Sexton in for Glenn today. You can download my show at theblaze.com slash Buck Sexton. Follow me on Twitter, face or, or at Twitter Buck Sexton, and also on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Let's take a call. Paul in North Carolina, what's up? You're on the Glenn Beck program. You're speaking to Buck. Hey, Buck. Thanks for taking my call, sir. You know, with the Clintons and the Obama administration in general, but especially the Clintons, it's always nothing to see here. Um, they've always got excuses for why they're doing stuff that is well, extremely shady, to say the least. Um, I mean, it's just disturbing, and it's scary to think what would happen if she becomes president. You know, one thing about the Benghazi thing that um, I, I'm 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 really disturbed about was that Ambassador Stevens, he was found, he was alive. Um, this man ended up being sodomized, and, um, you know, there's no telling what happened to him. You know, they've got video from drones. While this attack's going on, why do we not see the people who perpetrated this, um, you know, being brought to justice? And yeah, it's really, really disturbing. Again, the uh, level. The of only government. one, I believe, one person from Benghazi, one perpetrator of the roughly 100. They have, they have. That's it. They've gotten one out of 100. Uh, but the, part of the problem is that this has been dragged out for so long, the whole Benghazi situation, that the media knows they know what the sort of marching in lockstep uh, requires. Uh, they know that all they have to say is that this is old news. There's nothing new here and that they will they will move on. Uh, but well, thank you for your call, Paul, in North Carolina. Glenn in Ohio. You're on the Glenbeck program. You're speaking to Buck. Hi, Buck. Um, my question is, with all of these servers being hacked, and most of them being traced back to Russia. What is the Edward Snowden involvement in teaching them how to do it? It's an interesting question, one that I can't necessarily, I can't answer for you because I, I don't know what he, I don't know what Snowden knows and how much of it he's passed along. Uh, I have a guest joining us later on in the program. I could sort of pose to him uh, uh, what he thinks. He's a former NSA guy. Uh, who understands the tech side very well, so I could I could throw that out to him. But I do know people from inside the intelligence community, where I was uh, an analyst for a period of time at the CIA. Uh, I, I know people are furious about the Snowden uh, the Snowden revelations, and while a lot of sort of leftist uh, anti American types here will defend everything that Snowden did, all I know is that there's no justification, no rationale whatsoever for sharing any any collection on any foreign intelligence pro, or involving any foreign intelligence or 
uh, foreign uh, collection whatsoever. And that is apparently part of what he did. And he's being held by the or being helped along and helped by the Russians. So I, I don't know how much uh, know how he's given them. Uh, I can't I can't spec. I, well, I'm already speculating a little bit. I can't go beyond that in my speculation. But I'll just say that it's not good. Uh, it's not helpful. Uh, and if you believe some of the former uh, senior sort of CIA director, NSA director level people have come out and spoken about this and whether you believe them or not, I'll leave that to you. Uh, but they say that this has been uh, terribly uh, damaging to U.S. In, to U.S. intelligence uh, collection efforts, and has been hurtful against terrorism as well, specifically. So, uh, Glenn, maybe I'll revisit this one a little later. Thank you, uh, thank you for calling in. Ah, uh, yes, we'll be talking a lot about national security, by the way, in the next hour. So, stay tuned for that. But first, I wanted to in the in the sort of broad theme of uh, who who's the government really working for. There's there's all this transparency that's supposed to be out there. We're supposed to know what the government's up to, what they're doing. They're supposed to show us how they're spending our money, what they're doing with their time as they are being paid with taxpayer dollars. And there's this idea that we have that civil servants, I was one at one point, that civil servants are non-political. Right. And, for example, the uh, Attorney General, Loretta Lynch, who is an appointee, not a civil servant, but you know, that someone even at that level is is not driven by politics, but driven by the law or by a sense of fair play and whatever. Love for America, all the above. But we've already come to realize that the Supreme Court is politicized. Right? This has been the case for a long time. I'm not suggesting this is new. But now the, now the, the sort of food fights over who is going to be appointed and what the makeup of the court will be. We all understand that you have five liberal judges means liberals win 90%, maybe 95% of the time. Five conservative judges means conservatives win maybe like 50% of the time. Maybe. Thanks, Anthony Kennedy. Maybe. But it's very obvious that this has become, that this is political and it's a a battle, a back and forth between uh, two different Visions for the country, power structures, and all, and all the rest of it. This is not there's this is not neutral ground we're talking about with the Supreme Court. Those of us who recognize that should also recognize some interesting stuff, like hat tip the Washington Free Beacon on this one. Hillary has gotten seventy five thousand uh, dollars from Justice Department employees. They have contributed seventy five k to, and keep in mind there are personal uh, limits on this, and. Uh, there were a number of them went for the maximum, but there are some very, very active Hillary donors running around DOJ. And this actually makes sense when you break it down because people who work for the state increasingly are going to be statists. If you're a lifelong, if you're a lifelong bureaucrat, there's a very, and, and, I, and from this, I speak on experience. There's really a culture inside there, uh, inside all these bureaucracies of, Supporting Democrats because Democrats want to enlarge the state. Your budget will stay nice and fat. There'll be very little in the way of transparency for you. You can get away with all kinds of stuff. And so there is a sort of a a general feeling, a general theme among a lot of the large federal bureaucracies that you got to go with the Democrats. But it's also important to know that there are infiltrations of ideologically hardline leftists and liberals of all these major institutions. And when they are in a position to do so, 
they will wield that power for very partisan purposes. They'll do whatever they can to score points for their side when they wield what's supposed to be power that is either reined in by the regulations of the bureaucracy or by the law for talking DOJ. Uh, but just understand, and I think it's important, we're all on the same page here because I hear all the stuff out there about how, oh, Clinton presidency for conservatives is, uh, I read recently, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, it's a survivable event. Okay, well, first of all, we're looking for a presidency that's more of a survivable event for America. That's for starters. I think that's setting, that is setting the bar pretty low. But if we're going to put it at a more reasonable level, I don't know how much of our cherished freedoms and liberties survives a Hillary Clinton presidency. I think that you I think that people are giving her far too much credit. We saw how they were in the 90s. We saw how the Clintons uh, were willing to use any number of ploys and stratagems to defame people, to destroy them, to go after their enemies. And they're they're more powerful now. I mean, now with the Clinton Foundation and Hillary and Bill and all this stuff, she's been Secretary of State. You think they're going to forget? I mean, I'll be honest with you. Uh, who, who wants to put bets on whether there's a really rough audit coming? Uh, Citizens United and Judicial Watches and you name it, any number of conservative groups way under a Clinton administration. You already know. You'd say to me, Buck, no, it's too obvious. You already know what the media will say. Oh, you know, out of nowhere, Citizens United is just getting audited over and over and they've had visits from OSHA and, and the FBI came by just to have a chat and gosh, I mean, this would look bad, but you know, Hillary, she wouldn't be that obvious in going after her enemies. Yes, she would. Yes, she would. This is what we're signing up for as a country. If this is the person who's elected uh, for the presidency coming up here in the fall. Um, and well, I want to talk to you about this, because uh, I'm speaking about the bureaucracy and how it has been infiltrated, you could even say sort of infested with this leftist ideology that they need to be promoting all the time, uh, th- this sort of progressive sense of the state is the answer to all problems, and the, the government is a sort of self-aware entity like Skynet in the Terminator movies. It now exists to propagate itself and will try to destroy anybody who gets in its way. This is a partial explanation for what you saw with Lois Lerner and the IRS. How many people, by the way, got in, got in real trouble, criminal trouble for what has been, what was admitted to be a politicized target, uh, targeting operation using the most intrusive short, maybe only of federal law enforcement the most intrusive agent, and it really actually more intrusive than federal law enforcement because everybody's got to deal with the IRS every year. We've all got to sign all the stuff and do all the paperwork and tell them all this information and know that they don't even really know what the rules are. And we hope they don't come after us. Did anyone get in trouble for that? No, they did not. Not really. Some people pled the fifth uh, or took the fifth and uh, pleaded. Um, they're trying to do all this stuff now where we're told that this is this is just an accident or it's a coincidence that it always pushes in one way. DOJ is not going to press charges against Hillary Clinton for all these reasons. But the FEC is not something that usually gets people fired up. But the latest story about the FEC and what's going on there, the Federal Election Commission, I think we should talk about that. But we'll talk about it on either side of this break. Buck Sexton here in for Glenn, 888-727-BECK. We'll be right back. 
program. Triple eight seven two seven back. Mercury. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Buck Sexton here in for Glenn today on the Glenn Beck Program. 888-727-BECK is the phone number. I have seen the uh, breaking news uh, breaking news headlines about a lockdown at, at, uh, at Joint Base Andrews. Um, they, the reports of an active shooter, but no details beyond that. And there was a scheduled active shooter drill this morning. Anything more we have on that, we'll let you know as it comes up live. Um, but I have seen those reports, and right now there are some banners on a bunch of the uh, news sites that are describing that. So we'll keep you updated on that, and um, uh, don't uh, we'll, we'll we'll stay on that and make sure that we know what's happening as it comes forward. All right. Uh, so I was speaking about Hillary. I don't know if uh, I don't really have time to go on the FEC thing right now. I think that might have to be a third hour uh, situation. But the the more I the more I sort of look into this the past week's events about everything going on with. Clinton campaign, the way they're handling stuff, the way that they are able to call upon their friends and allies and the various bureaucracies to cover for them. It just seems clear to me that we're at a point now, if you think that the law is going to be equally applied across party lines, I'm afraid that's becoming a very naive position. There are people, it's just part of the mentality that there are people who are of the left. There are people who have ensconced themselves in the flabby folds of the of the bureaucracy and they will wield power in whatever way they can to help for help the causes that they like going forward uh, we're seeing all, all these efforts to either suppress information or uh, push information aside to find some means of hiding the truth from the public i mean this is let's Let's point this out. This is the administration that had said, I think we, we have the clip, right? Obama, uh, Obama said that this was, would be the most transparent administration in history. Play it, please. Oh, I thought we had that. We don't have it. But I can tell you that he said it. So the Obama administration at one point did claim to be the most transparent administration in history. And uh, they have failed to live up to that pledge. There's no question about it. And when you look at what's going on right now with the Clinton administration, for them to do this power handoff properly to keep uh, everything going as it is, for them to continue on and make sure that this is Obama's third term, they're going to have to play ball. So all the stuff you've heard about how Obama doesn't like Clinton and he wouldn't cover for, I was reading theories from uh, all sorts of folks, but a couple of months ago even. They're saying, oh, Obama's going to, he, he's going to cover for Hillary because he likes her. That has nothing to do with it, whether he likes her or not. He's an ideologue. He believes in the cause. And they have certain assets that they can bring to bear on these sorts of things. Right? He's somebody who can rely on the judiciary. He can rely on the Department of Justice. Uh, he can rely on any number of federal bureaucracies the IRS, to punish enemies, to try to do what they can to support and help uh, the progressive cause. And in the meantime, we're all left here to say, hold on a second. Oh, we have it? Oh, I think we do have it. Just Let's just play it for fun. Let's just to reminisce. Moment, let's get a little we have to use technology to open up 
our democracy. It's no coincidence that one of the most secretive administrations in our history has favored special interests and pursued policies that could not stand up to the sunlight. As president, I'm going to change that. We will put government data online in universally accessible formats. I'll let citizens. Yeah. Yeah, they're going to put it online in universally acceptable formats. Back to the uh, Abedin testimony about H- uh, Hillary Clinton's server. This is for the lawsuit, the FOIA lawsuits that Citizens United has, uh, has brought. This is from the New York Times. Uh, she said that she assumed the use of a private email was allowed, although the Inspector General's report concluded no permission was ever sought and it would have been turned down if it had been. Asked why neither she nor aides to... Mrs. Clinton mentioned the private server to State Department officials in charge of preserving documents. She described it as an oversight. Quote, it is not anything that occurred to us. We all wish we could go back and that not be the case. See, Hillary's defense at this point is just the pretense of grotesque incompetence. That's how bad it's gotten. Got a lot coming. We're going to talk national security up here in just a minute. Buck Sexton and for Glenn, stay with me. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Mercury. Sexton here in for Glenn Beck today on the Glenn Beck program. 888-727-BECK is the phone number. We're going to talk some national security now and bring you into what we call a buck brief. You are entering the Blaze Threat Ops Center. This is a secure space. All outside comms are down. Prepare to receive the buck brief. There's new information about the terrorist attack at Ataturk International Airport in Istanbul. We now, it's now been reported that some of the individuals involved may have come from uh, uh, Russian regions, including Chechnya and Dagestan. To bring us up to speed on all this, we're joined now by Michael Weiss. He is the author of Inside ISIS, uh, or ISIS rather, Inside the Army of Terror, which has an expanded edition out now. It is a fantastic book. I have read it. I highly recommend it. To all of you, he is also a senior editor at the Daily Beast. Michael, thank you for calling in. Thanks, man. Good to be back. So what's the latest? So the Turkish government has said that the three suicide bombers were um, a Dagestani, which is a Russian national from the Caucasus region, an Uzbek, and a Kyrgyz. So all from the former Soviet Union region, uh, which is known to be a longtime incubator of Islamist insurgency groups and militancies. Um, what I find also interesting is well, they've named one of the suicide bombers as Osman Vadinov. Uh, apparently he crossed 
into Turkey in 2015 from Raqqa, uh, which would make this definitely an ISIS-planned terror attack rather than an ISIS-inspired one. Uh, there's also some supposition, uh, although it has not yet been confirmed, that a guy called Ahmed Chetayev um, was the mastermind or the ringleader of this whole operation. He was not one of the suicide bombers, so he's still out there. Um, this guy is known to the United States and the United Nations. He's been on terrorism watch lists for a long time. Um, he was actually arrested by the Georgian government uh, on charges of possessing illegal weapons and released on bail. Um, and he's been all over Europe, uh, Germany, Austria, uh, and elsewhere, and is known uh, to the Chechen diaspora community as a very bad actor. Now, take what I'm about to say with a pinch of salt, because uh, many Chechens who hate Vladimir Putin and Moscow uh, often think that everything is a Russian conspiracy, but indeed uh, there is one prominent uh, Chechen diaspora leader, leader in Vienna, who has posted that uh, this guy uh, was recruited by the FSB, the Russian security forces. Now, again, take that with a huge pinch of salt. We don't know that that's true, but this is interesting. There's other things that have emerged, too. Uh, apparently, and, and this comes from Turkey, which you know has every incentive to want to blame this on either the PKK or the Assad regime or one of their other enemies, um, rather than ISIS, which, whilst an enemy, is not their highest priority enemy. Uh, they claim that they confiscated or they found a ticket stub, uh, one of the suicide bombers. And what's weird about this is the name is Arabic, not Russian or Chechen or, you know, Central Asian. And it says that he flew from Damascus, controlled by the Assad regime, to Kamishli, which is the capital of Syrian Kurdistan, also under regime control, at least the airport is. So... A lot of different and somewhat contradictory threads here, but what we're beginning to see is that uh, these guys were almost certainly foreign fighters, uh, and it's, it, it seems very clear to me that this was an ISIS-planned operation, which for Turkey would probably – I mean, it's, it's hard to say because, you know, the Turks are not very transparent about all the other ISIS attacks. And, and they, yeah, they've thought there have been soil. some other operations that they've attributed to ISIS, even though ISIS hasn't taken credit for them. Right. And, and those operations may have been planned internally by the ISIS network that's pretty extensive and operates throughout Turkey, from Ankara to Istanbul and elsewhere, or also kind of been coordinated and, and planned in Raqqa. We don't know. But, you know, look, I saw we also saw the video surveillance footage of these guys running around with their Kalashnikovs and, you know, the suicide bomber on the ground, wounded, uh, pulling the detonation device or pushing the button or whatever. They looked like they had some combat training. Um, and it, it would have surprised the hell out of me if someone had said that they just were random people in an apartment in Istanbul who cooked this whole thing up. Um, so, yeah, I, I wouldn't. And within know, the I, jihadi I, community as well, the people from the Chechnya, the, the, the Dagestan, they, they tend to be considered among the more, you know, they have a reputation for being the more highly trained and, and fierce uh, uh, jihadi they fighters. Are, they are the baddest fighters you can find in, in the annals of international jihad. Uh, any Syrian will tell you if they fought ISIS, the, the, the toughest battles they fought have been with, they call them all Chechens, um, because such is the reputation of Chechen warriors for being so formidable on the battlefield. But yeah, if it, you know, Uzbeks, uh, Kazakhs, uh, Dagestanis, you name it. In fact, there's a battalion in, in ISIS called the Uzbek Battalion, sort of like uh, special forces. Uh, and these guys were holding Fallujah for a while, uh, the city in Iraq that just fell to pro-Iraqi government forces and Shia militias. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's not all that shocking for another reason, too, which is the Russian government has dispatched its foreign intelligence operatives in the SVR to assassinate suspects uh, from the Caucasus, so known jihadists in Russia who have gone off to Turkey. I mean, Turkey obviously is an easy transport hub, uh, given its proximity to Georgia and, well, Ukraine and the Russian-controlled Crimea now, and, and it's, a, it's a holiday destination for lots of Russian nationals, or it was. Um, prior to the chill, which has now seemed to have uh, dissipated or, or warmed up again between Ankara and Moscow. So this is, it, it's also the timing is strange because this comes within a 48-hour period of, of Putin and Erdogan having a phone call and making, kissing up and, and or, you know, kissing and making up essentially for the uh, Turkish shootdown of the Su-24 Russian bomber several months ago. In what is the Turkish uh, response, and what should we be prepared to see from Turkey it, it, now that it's it's going to be an, it, the the conclusion was inescapable really from the beginning that this was at least either ISIS inspired or and now mm-hmm. as we see it looks like it was ISIS directed foreign fighters that probably trained in camps in Syria, mass casualty attack, major international airport. The Turks do what now? Well, I, I would assume they're going to coordinate very closely with the Russians to find out you know, the FSB, uh, which is the domestic security arm, had a file on, on any and all of these guys. My guess is they probably did. Um, I don't know to what extent it's going to affect Turkey's calculation with respect to ISIS on the battlefield. I mean, I've seen reports yesterday that Turkish jets were bombing ISIS locations. So, But we've seen this movie before, you know, a... a, a country and it's part of the coalition a muslim majority country gets hit by isis and then there's this big show of force you know with the jordanians after the immolation of Mozal al-qasazda the, the airmen that isis captured and burnt alive in a cage um i don't know that turkey's going to do anything really all that dramatic uh, i don't see them sending in ground forces into northern syria at least not without a a strong u.s contingent alongside to create a buffer zone, which is not going to happen under this administration. Um, You'll probably see a continuation and an uptick in what's already been happening. Artillery shelling across the border, um, some some aerial campaigns, and uh, I think the focus is going to be on domestic, rounding up these ISIS networks and cells inside Turkey, uh, throwing a lot of these guys into prison, and yeah, greater coordination. You know, I mean, the Israelis will help them now that they have reestablished ties, and the Russians for sure will will want to work with them. And, you know, with the Russians, it's, it's always a bit of a cynical game. Um, I wrote a report about a year ago saying that they're based on Russian press investigations that the FSB had been sending, facilitating the transfer of known Dagestani jihadists into Syria, uh, at least up until the Sochi Winter Olympics in 2014. Why? Well, you know, better they blow stuff up in the Middle East than they do it on Russian Federation territory, particularly around the, the you know the hosting of a major international sporting event. So the Russians have played a dirty game. You know they've been sending the, essentially the people that they now claim to be bombing. Into right. The well, this is what the Syrians were doing this during the Iraq War too, right? It was funnel oh, yeah, the jihadists, sure. funnel the jihadists into Iraq and make it America's problem and the coalition's problem and not Syria's problem, and that has Absolutely. now backfired on them. Absolutely. I mean, and you know Turkey has turned a blind eye to the jihadists in its midst. Uh, there was reports in The Guardian that after the Abu Sayyaf raid in Deir Zor uh, a couple months ago by JSOC, that the intelligence uncovered, or recovered, I should say, by the U.S. implicates Turkey in at least allowing ISIS to conduct its operations and to kind of use the Turkish-Syrian border as a, a gateway to get, move back and forth. So, And then that's done pretty damaging, lasting 
lasting harm to the U.S.-Turkish relationship. Do you so think look, this? I mean, uh... everyone's saying is this, is this going to be the, the Turkey's wake-up call? I don't know. I mean, look look how quickly the airport was back online with flights coming in and out. I mean, Turkey sloughed off terrorism for forty years because they've been subject to it for forty years. They've been hit, and they've been hit a lot. They've been hit by yeah. what was there was that attack that was double suicide bombers killed over killed a hundred, uh, and that was within the last twelve yeah, months. Hanley. Yeah, Red yeah. Hanley, um, you know, and, and on Takia there have been attacks. Uh, the PKK has been blowing up police stations and hitting, uh, you know, security services in southeastern Turkey. You know, Turkey also has a history of, like, far-left Marxist-Leninist terrorism that has nothing to do with Kurdish separatism. There was a guy uh, who actually was leading an Alawite militia in Syria, promising to conduct an ethnic cleansing campaign of all Sunnis on the coast, who was a, a Turkish terrorist, known to the Turkish government for, for being part of this kind of, you know, very far-left terror syndicate that had operated since the 70s. So you know, Turkey's no stranger to this. I mean, in a way, they, they share this with Russia, right? Whenever there's a bombing in the Moscow metro or an airliner goes out and gets blown out of the sky, Russians sort of shrug and move on. They don't have the same um, sensitivity to it as we do in the West. All right. Michael Weiss is the author of ISIS, Inside the Army of Terror. There's an expanded new edition of it out now. I highly recommend it to all of you. You can get it on Amazon or in your local bookstore. Michael, thank you for calling in. Good to talk to you. Cheers, man. Thank you. 888-727-BECK. Buck Sexton in for Glenn. Much more coming. Stay with me. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Mercury. Sexton here in for Glenn Beck today, uh, continuing on with our discussion about what now in the aftermath of the mass casualty attack that occurred, that happened at uh, Istanbul's Ataturk International Airport. The Turks won't necessarily change that much of what they're doing. Um, they had pretty good procedures in place at that airport, but if you have hardened, trained jihadists willing to give their lives and who will kill as many civilians as possible. Very little that can be done to stop that kind of an attack unless you can get them in the planning stage, unless you can disrupt the attack. If you're working on countermeasures, the best that you can hope for usually, unless you get really lucky, unless the guy says something, unless the, you know, the, the guy driving the car bomb or uh, carrying the AK under his, va- under his jacket or whatever, says something really stupid to a security guard or police officer, and all of a sudden it all falls apart unless you get lucky. Like, for example, we, uh, we were lucky with the high-speed train where a couple of Americans, uh, a few Americans, tackled a guy who, had he gotten that AK up and going, could have killed easily dozens of people. Uh, but he just managed to get caught in that moment in the bathroom. You know, we don't even talk about... We, we don't even remember the disrupted attacks. And it's essential if you're going to try to put all this into a context of, well, how much of a security threat is this one way or the other? You have to keep in mind, we're spending billions of dollars. We have enormous agencies, uh, intelligence agencies, law enforcement agencies, local law enforcement across the country uh, has to be prepared for this at some level. 
and sometimes are engaged in uh, federal fusion center uh, efforts to try to prevent terrorism, especially in major cities. All that's happening, all that's going on, and there are plots that are disrupted, and those aren't usually counted in the tally of, well, how grave is this threat? Because when we get lucky, we tend to think that, well, the status quo is we'll keep getting lucky, and then eventually it all runs out. What can we do about this? Well, it shouldn't really bring anyone much comfort when the CIA director, John Brennan, says that he believes that the Islamic State will carry out an Istanbul-style attack, attacks, actually, plural, on U.S. soil. The CIA director here saying, get ready for it. It's coming. And I I will say that no no matter what you may think of the uh, Trump candidacy right now, and no matter what you think of his proposed uh, proposed way forward uh, that involving changing how we deal with immigration from predominantly Muslim countries that also have a terrorism problem. Uh, I can tell you this, the Democrats, Hillary Clinton, they have nothing other than status quo. I mean, they have the Obama CIA director here, John Brennan, saying that they're going to carry out attacks here on U.S. soil. They're obviously going to try to prevent those attacks, do what they can. The FBI, CIA, NSA, everybody else going to try to stop them. But we're essentially, perpetually forced to play defense. There's nothing that this administration will uh, will do in, in, in a broad spectrum sense, right? Yeah, sure, there'll be some uh, airstrike here or there, a drone strike here or there. But they have no means of trying to expand upon what's already being done. And what we know is that that's insufficient to protect us from. We've been hit already multiple times by ISIS-inspired attacks. And now we're talking about the possibility, even the likelihood, perhaps, depending on who you ask, the certainty of an ISIS-directed attack. And one of the big differentials when you're looking at the casualties that result from this kind of an incident, how much training does the person have? How hardened a jihadist are they? Have they been on the battlefield somewhere, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, somewhere, Pakistan. Uh, Have they been fighting? Do they know what it is to be in a situation where they have to use weapons? Or there's just somebody who's sitting in a basement somewhere. By the way, we always think everyone's, everyone who does crazy things on the internet's in a basement. No, are they, are they in some place where they've just decided to watch enough videos that they have ideologically hardened and decided that they will be, that the synapses have kind of all, lined up in one direction for jihad, and they're going to engage in this conduct without having any training. Sometimes that means that there'll be very few, perhaps even only one or two casualties from one of these incidents. But we are just essentially hoping. We are standing back and saying to ourselves, well, most of the ones who will try this won't be particularly good at it, and so that's going to be one of our main defenses. When you have the Islamic State churning out thousands and thousands of trained fighters they don't need that much training by the way if they know how to quickly reload basic marksmanship a little basic explosive some surveillance detection some some of the sort of ttps they could probably teach a jihadi in a few weeks that's enough because they're attacking soft targets they're not saying yeah we're going to go after the u.s military's best and and fight it out man to man they're saying we're going to go blow up women and children somewhere were completely defenseless. So the tactics that they have to use, the tactics that they uh, can hone in a jihadi camp in, in or around Raqqa, 
not hard to pick up. This is not difficult for them, and it's really only a matter of time. Whether they manage to get someone in who has a passport that won't set off any red flags, or they come via one of our borders, southern, northern, you name it, doesn't matter. They find a way to get here, and then you will have what ha- what has occurred in Turkey, in Ataturk International Airport, can happen at JFK, O'Hare, LAX, anywhere. And then people might start to decide that the American people, they might decide that we're going to take some sort of action on this to pull this terrorism out at its root as best we can. It's an ideology you can never truly uh, destroy an ideology. It can always resurface. It can come back. But the longer the Islamic State lasts, the longer this sort of jihadist uh, nation-building project is allowed to continue, uh, the harder it will be for us to have a counter-narrative, a counter-messaging campaign that makes this all seem preposterous, and we won't have to keep dealing with it. This is going to be with us for a long time, and the more we wait, I think the more that timeline expands. Buck in for Glenn. More coming. The Glenn Beck Program. You are joining a clandestine meeting in progress. If you believe you are under hostile surveillance, engage in a brush pass. You will now be read into sensitive programs in real time. Your handlers are in place and ready. Hide any documents, flash drives, or other material on your person that could blow your cover. Do not communicate this information with any other assets in the field. This is spy time. Buck Sexton here in for Glenn Beck. We're going to talk to John Schindler, some spy chat here. His latest piece is Moscow Rules of Espionage Go Global. If you think it's KGB, it is. John Schindler is a columnist for The Observer, formerly of the NSA. A couple of former Intel guys going to have a chat. John, thank you for calling in. Hey, happy to be here as always, Buck. So what is the latest with the Russian intelligence services, John? Well, the Russians are playing nasty. Uh, this is really a Cold War 2.0, as I call it, stuff. Uh, it's been reported recently uh, that uh, U.S. diplomats in Moscow are getting roughed up, uh, far more than normal surveillance from Russian security services, breaking into apartments. Uh, U.S. diplomat was recently put in the hospital. This is going to be a very serious deal, and Obama's not responding. Now, what should the Obama administration do in response to this kind of stuff? What would be a, a good way forward, well, in your opinion? Well, what they have done is tell the Russian foreign ministry to cut it out, which does absolutely nothing. What they need to do is resort to Cold War tactics, uh, which would be uh, throwing known Russian spies in the U.S. out of the country. Uh, as we call it in the spy business, persona non grata, or PNG. The FBI, in most cases, has identified the majority of the Russian spies in the United States. We know who they are. We, we watch them as best we can. Uh, uh, my, my suggestion would be you put a U.S. diplomat in the hospital. Every time you do that, we will throw a, a dozen Russian spies out of the U.S., 
that's how the spy war goes. Now, how there's another aspect to your piece that that I, I wanted to touch on because the the Russian intelligence services, you know, we, we tend to think, well, we're in a post Cold War era and the KGB no longer exists, right? The KGB has been broken down into uh, a few successor agencies, sure. FSB, the what are the Federalnaya Slozba Bezoplaznosti, right? There we go. Federal Security Service. FSB, SVR, and GRU, military side, SVR being the foreign operation side of things, they're much more active than people seem to realize. Yeah, look, SVR and GRU, the civilian and military foreign intelligence services in Russia, are as active now in terms of numbers of folks, numbers of operations in the West as they ever were during the Cold War. In a lot of Western countries, their activity is higher than it was at the height of the Cold War. And Americans really don't seem to realize this. Counterintelligence folks know this, but the Obama administration doesn't talk about this, and I think they need to. Then you add the fact that the FSB, which is by far the biggest of Russia's uh, intelligence agencies, uh, which is the former domestic side of the KGB, the really nasty people who ran, you know, ran the gulag, um, these people are now getting their hand with Putin's permission into foreign operations, which is really dangerous, because these guys are thugs, frankly. The SVR and GRU are professional spies. They're a bit rougher than we are, but they're in the same business that CIA, that NSA, that Western intelligence agencies are in. FSB is they, they just don't a, have the armies of lawyers walking fighting. around, I assume, telling them what they can and can't do. <laughs> I See, think Putin loves true. this stuff. I think Putin reads about this every morning in his read book on his desk and salivates about what the FSB is doing, frankly. I mean, you say that if you think it's the KGB, it is. What do you mean by that yeah. in your piece? Oh, uh, what I mean by that is uh, this harkens back to the famous Moscow rules of the Cold War, when the reality was for U.S. and Western intelligence people in Russia doing operations in a very difficult environment because the KGB on the turf. And the Moscow rules boil down to always be suspicious. If you think things are not a coincidence, they probably are not. If you're being watched, it's probably the KGB, and act accordingly. Always look over your shoulder. What the Russians are doing is not just bringing that back, but they're now exporting that beyond the borders of Russia into Europe itself, perhaps in the United States, and that would be a really alarming turn of events. Now, what, are, what, what was your take on Russian government hackers? This was reported on by the Washington Post um, just, a, just a couple of weeks ago. Sure. Getting into the DNC servers, stealing all their stuff? What's going on there? Well, I mean, why shouldn't they? Well, what's the cost to Moscow of aggressive spy shenanigans, both on the street and in the virtual world online? What do we do about it? Nothing. I think it has to be assumed these reports are accurate, and the reality is probably even worse than, than what's been reported. Russian spy hackers who work indirectly, at least, for the Russian government, maybe directly, we don't know, have stolen the secrets of the DNC. They're deeply embedded in our political system. It's not just the U.S. government that's compromised, but the nature of our democratic political system. If I were Vladimir Putin, I'd do the same thing, because why not? Who is going to stop them? Yeah, well, what, would be the re- what would be the reaction they could expect there? It seems like it would be well, mi- minimal, minimal at best, that it gives them a pretty good insight into the U.S. Uh, US election. Think about what they know. There is no downside for Moscow. What they know isn't just the ostensible word of our politics, but how lobbying works, how K Street works, their interaction with Congress, with the Democratic National Committee. Um, This is really dirty stuff. This is who's paying off whom. This is the the nasty underside of American politics that most Americans don't like but don't see very often. We can assume the Kremlin knows more about it than the American public does. Where do you come down, John, on the uh, what, what, what Brexit does in terms of Russia's view of, of Europe as really as an adversary, but also 
perhaps as, as, as a cow to be milked. I mean, as, as a, as a target of opportunity, depending on, uh, you know, how, or whether we're talking about economically or, or politically and yeah. otherwise, what do you think about what's, what's happened over there now? How, do you think their view of things has changed? No, I don't. I mean, look, I, I think Putin's very happy about Brexit because anything that weakens the EU is perceived to be good for Moscow. I don't know if that's actually true, but that's their perception. Um, but let's be very clear. Brexit really isn't going to change much of anything in the short run. Certainly in our basic security arrangements, our American special relationship with Britain will be completely untouched by all this. And frankly, so will Britain's intelligence and security relationships with their European partners in Paris, Berlin, elsewhere. Brexit is political theater. It doesn't impact national security much at all. And any, and any attempt to say it does is really just political showboating. The British security services are very competent. They will keep doing what they're doing. There's a big Russian threat there. There's a big jihadist threat there. Brexit has nothing to do with any of this. So as of this morning, it's been reported uh, sw- switching our focus uh, to what happened in Turkey for a moment. We had Michael Weiss on before talking to him a bit about how yeah. we have a, a Dagestani, I believe a, a, an, an Uzbek, a handful of sort of yeah. former Soviet jihadis seem to be the ones that were deployed directly by ISIS for this attack. It looks like at least, I think 15 was the number that I saw arrested. Yeah. It might've even been a little higher than that. Um, what, what's, uh, what are your main takeaways at this point after this uh, mass casualty attack? Well, obviously, it's horrible. The attack at uh, Istanbul Airport, uh, a mass casualty attack. Uh, none of this should be surprising. The Turks have played footsie with ISIS for a long time, since almost the beginning. This is blowback on them. The fact that the attackers appear to be from the former Soviet Union, from the stands, even some Russian nationals, also should not be surprising. There's a massive, massive recruitment by ISIS in the former Soviet Union, in the caucuses, in the stands. Um, and, of course, the reality is, back to the FSB, the FSB in Russia has actively encouraged and assisted jihadists from the former Soviet Union to go to the Middle East. This is not news. This is all over the place. Um, This is a very murky, ugly thing. It's probably just the beginning of blowback um, that ISIS has decided to take the war to Turkey indicates things are changing. I think it's also very interesting that things with Moscow are we're sort of looking up for Turkey. Erdogan gave a kind of an apology the other day for uh, shooting down the Russian uh, aircraft a few months ago and killing its pilot. But Ataturk Airport in Istanbul then blows up. Uh, for the Turks, this is the, the Turks are used to terrorism, but even for them, this is really, really dramatic, ugly stuff. Now, you, Michael mentioned this before. We talked about it a little bit, but I, I wanted you to expand on it because I think it is will be very interesting for everybody listening. The FSB or Russian intel services directing jihadis to go to the yeah. Middle East. How, how does this work, Absolutely. and what's the purpose? Um. First of all, uh, the Russian intelligence, mainly the FSB, but not exclusively, has deeply penetrated jihadist groups in Chechnya and Dagestan and southern Russia going back 20 years. This is not new. Um, second of all, it's very much in their interest that these, that these crazy guys go far away. They may get killed. They won't go home. Also, it enables them to watch them. And they've actually set up conduits. There's very good evidence that the FSB is actually directly paying some jihadists to go to, go to the Middle East, to go to Syria, go to Iraq. And it's a certain thing, knowing how the Russian intelligence services work, they have their own agents embedded in there. They want to know what's going on. They're watching the jihadists from the inside. This is classic Russian tradecraft. This is how they operate, which, of course, leads very quickly to uncomfortable questions about who's really pulling the strings here. And I think the answer is we don't know yet. We simply don't know. When, whenever a, 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 a jihadist attack lines up with Moscow's foreign policy interests, as is the case here with Turkey, which has made itself a big enemy of Vladimir Putin over the last year, you have to ask questions about who's really pulling the strings. So you think that there is at least the theoretical possibility, 
that someone inside the Russian intelligence service may have known something about what was going to happen here. Sure. Possibly. I don't think you could exclude that at all at this point. Look, uh, the Russian intelligence services are deeply embedded with the Kurds, have been for years, not new. Uh, and the Kurds, of course, are waging a long-standing 30-year war against the Turkish state. Um, we know that Russian agents have penetrated deeply into ISIS. I don't think you can rule anything out at this point. We simply don't know enough. Now, for those for those listening as well, uh, we're talking about a lot of acronyms, Russian intelligence, what they're doing over there. Obviously, there's a major terrorist attack at an international airport that a, a lot of a lot of a lot of Americans, a lot of Europeans, a lot of people all over the world constantly use. And of course, uh, many, many Turks killed, many others killed. Yeah. So people are paying close attention to this. But I know there's also a sense of, OK, so we see this. We knew it was ISIS right away. Now it seems to be confirmed. What can we do? Yeah. And when someone asks you that question, what can we do? What other than and you know, I know that I don't have to tell you this, John, but just for for those out there who like to say, well, Hillary Clinton is going to work with our allies. I mean, that's <laughs> that's sort of like saying if we're all nice to each other, we'll have we'll have world peace. I mean, what what beyond that can right. we do? Right. This quickly falls into cliches about better international security cooperation, which is meaningless. What we really have to do as as if you're talking about protecting America, get rid of the TSA, start getting serious about stopping terrorism in and around airports. This is a soft target. Look, after 9-11, we've made it hard for the terrorists to get on, on airplanes with weapons. So instead, they're attacking, attacking soft targets at the airport. This is not the end. This is the beginning. If they can attack there, they will attack elsewhere. And more of this is coming. Our, our European partners have to take this much more seriously. So does the United States. We're very naive if we think this can't happen in America, too. It certainly can. Either get rid of TSA or completely remake it to stop harassing innocent Americans and stop security theater and start getting serious about stopping terrorists. That is not what the TSA is doing right now. One last one for you, John, before we have to go into a break. Uh, a caller earlier on the show asked what, uh, what, if anything, Snowden has done that has damaged, or, or rather just in general, has Snowden damaged the U.S. Uh, intelligence community's ability to counteract terrorism because of the revelations that he's put out there. What, what say you to that? Oh, I, I think it's an established fact. We've had senior NSA and other, other intelligence officials say it as a fact that more than 100 terrorist groups we've, or, or terrorist groups or entities we've lost at least some communications intercept on. Uh, you'd be very naive to think this degree of compromise hasn't been noticed by terrorists. They read the Internet, too. They read the same stuff that Snowden's putting out there. Say nothing of the huge damage done by Snowden, the most important defector in the history of Western intelligence, who went to Moscow with over a million classified U.S. government documents, some of them very highly classified. If you think that doesn't matter, you don't know anything about espionage. John Schindler is the national security columnist for The Observer. You can follow him on Twitter, at 20Committee. John, always a pleasure to have you, sir. Thanks for your time. Great pleasure, always. Keep it real, Buck. Thanks. I always keep it real. 888-727-BECK. Buck in for Glenn. Back after this break. I'm old. I'm fat. And this is as good as it gets. The universal truth. I'm older and getting fatter. and Same thing is happening. Drastic times call for drastic measures. I'm going to just starve myself. My willpower is fading away fast. The Wonderful World of Stew presents... The world's first star viewmentary. This Friday at 8 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze TV. You're listening to the Glenn Beck Program.
This is the Glenn Beck Program. Buck Sexton here today, pinch hitting for Glenn, 888-727-BECK. You can also tell me your thoughts about the show at facebook.com slash Buck Sexton or at Buck Sexton on Twitter. Dave in Florida, we got a minute and change. I wanted to get you in. What's up? Uh, we're, I just heard the last couple of seconds of your last thing about how much damage Snowden might have done with his information. And then I remembered back to the Bush administration, Bush 43, where the New York Times had published an article about how we were tracking money being sent from the states to the banks in Europe and tracking it all the way to the terrorists. And the New York Times didn't get in any trouble. And Glenn asked at the time, because everybody was really hating on Bush, do, do they want people to die to make Bush look bad? And I called in and I said, well, yeah, I think they do. And he said, do you really think they do? And I said, well, maybe they don't want people to die. Maybe they just don't care. There, there were leaks during the Bush administration that clearly hurt national security, but they hurt Bush as well. And so I mean, you're naming one of them. Uh, so the media, you know, went, went forward or, or was willing to go forward with with those kinds of leaks. Um, but look, this is this is something that, by the way, there there is actually from a statutory perspective, there there's nothing there, there's no special uh, privilege the media has when it comes to revealing classified, whether that was classified or not, neither confirming nor denying over here, I'm just saying. Um, but the, me- the media just usually relies on the-, the historical precedent that they don't prosecute people for this, although this administration has been more aggressive with people mishandling classified information than any previously. The Espionage Act has been used by the Obama administration more than every previous presidency in U.S. history combined. But they're all about transparency and, you know, fair play and rule of law. It's crazy, Dave, but this is the world we live in, unfortunately. It's the uh, the America of today. Dave, thanks for calling in. Uh, Buck Sexton in for Glenn. Much more coming in the third hour. I'll be back right after this break. The Glenn Beck Program. Mercury. Sexton here in for Glenn today. You can find out more about me at theblaze.com slash Buck Sexton. You can download my show every day, 12 to 3 Eastern there, or you can listen live at theblaze.com slash radio. Formerly a CIA analyst, currently with The Blaze, have been for five years, pretty much to the day now. It's actually almost my five-year Blaze anniversary, uh, where I'm a host of The Buck Sexton Show and uh, do a fair bit of national security analysis and writing I'm going to continue on in that vein right now because this is sort of tying together first hour and second hour. First hour, we talked a bit about the government, transparency, 
uh, hiding things from the American people? How can we make sound decisions about our government, about policies, if we're not given the basic information necessary for that analysis? That's on one side of it. And then the second hour, we talked a lot about recent uh, happenings around the world and how they affect us here at home with regard to terrorism, uh, various intelligence services, the kind of stuff they're up to. Um, now we look at government uh, government agencies, national security agencies, and transparency here at home. Uh, you have the FBI. This is from the Orlando Sentinel. Asking any agencies uh, who responded to the Pulse uh, terrorist massacre uh, just a couple weeks ago to deny records requests. Now this also comes after there was that preposterous, and that is a good word, I believe that was the word used by uh, Paul Ryan at the time, uh, that completely ludicrous redaction of words like ISIS or Islamic State from the Orlando shooters' transcripts. And there was the walk back from that, right? They'd had days to think about this. And, of course, we were told to believe that the most, uh, the, the highest death count terrorist attack since 9-11 was not something that the administration, Loretta Lynch or uh, President Obama or anyone else uh, in the senior reaches of the White House uh, had anything to do with whatsoever. That was the official line. I don't believe it. I hope you don't believe it. But that was what they were telling us at the time. And eventually within, and by eventually, I mean within a few hours, they decided to walk that one back. They changed it around and they put in the words that we all already knew that were removed from that transcript after the initial reasoning behind it was exposed as so flimsy and just so ridiculous. Oh, well, we don't want to give the shooter more, what, more acclaim, more more credit, more attention than he already has had all over the world. I mean, it's just was complete and utter nonsense. But now you got the FBI saying that they don't want law enforcement agencies um, who respond? Any law enforcement agencies who responded to the Pulse nightclub, so so police forces, local police forces in the area, to uh, hand over information relating to the nine one one calls, uh, their response, anything else that day. This is from the Orlando Sentinel. Uh, the letter from the FBI requested agencies deny inquiries and directs departments to immediately notify the FBI of any requests your agency received. So the FBI can seek to prevent disclosure through appropriate channels as necessary. End quote. Why? Why are they fighting to prevent the release of like nine one one calls? Why are they fighting to prevent the American people from being able to know more about what happened? Don't the shooter is dead? This is going to, they're going to say this is going to affect the ongoing investigation. Are, are we expecting more arrests? Uh, if there is a cell out there that knew about this or that was involved, one would hope that the FBI is going to balance out the need for the public to be aware of that looming danger with their need to protect uh, their investigation and to make sure that they don't uh, blow things before they can actually arrest the individuals that but that's all theoretical I, I have no idea if that's the case or not i my understanding as of now based on everything we've been told based on everything in the media is that this was just there was one shooter and maybe some individuals around him knew something didn't say something but not that there was another sort of secondary or uh 
operational plot that's involved here. That's not what we've been told. But this just begins to add all up in one direction, right? This pushes in the direction of the FBI, the federal government. And people say, look, but the FBI, this kind of thing, this kind of decision that's being made, of course there's input from people who are politicians, whether it's the White House or it's appointees. Appointees at these agencies are really just politicians going by another name. I'm not talking about some... Uh, some some FBI career officer, uh, career career field agent, who's out there and trying to make these decisions. I'm talking about what's coming up from the top down because this is this reeks of politics. And quite honestly, if there somehow if there's not any politics involved in this, you got to think to yourself: the FBI's got to recognize what the appearance is, and with these situations, the appearance of of corruption or the appearance of politicization, better word for this, is enough. They need to be avoiding that. Why can't we know what happened there? There's the politics angle of it, which we've touched on a little bit. Then there's also another place that is uh, a difficult one for many to go. There's uh, the, the line of analysis that what happened that night should teach us all uh, or rather should teach law enforcement and all Americans as a form of policy uh, going forward, that you have to, the, the sort of the way the mentality after 9-11, when we had planes hijacked by people with box cutters, because it had been thought before that, that, well, hijackers, uh, they, they wanted the plane, they want attention, but there'll be negotiations, they'll land it somewhere, and, and there's a chance that all the hostages will go home. That was pre-9-11 thinking. After 9-11, there was the recognition that if somebody says, we're seizing control of this plane you're on, uh, you're, fight, you're fighting it out right then and there. you got to at least take your chances that maybe you get control of the plane back. Uh, and we saw that that was what happened in that field in Pennsylvania where, that, where brave Americans managed to at least stop the terrorists from using yet another plane that day as a massive guided missile headed for the Capitol building. So we've changed our thinking on that. In these sort of situations, active shooter situations, mass shooter situations, and by the way, the one at Andrews Air Force Base, uh, the breaking news that was reported on that, that there was a lockdown. The reports now are the lockdown has, been, uh, has, been, has ended and there are no casualties, no reports of anything there. Back to Orlando and back to the mindset change here. You have people who are being murdered in large numbers inside this nightclub. Um, and the police are on scene. They're on scene for three hours uh, before they finally go in and, and end this standoff. Uh, there have been plenty of reports already about gunshots continuing to happen after the police have entered. So, and, and they're on scene. There, are, there were many officers, at least from what I read, there were at least six on scene with uh either AR-15s with long guns of some kind. And long guns and, and uh, uh, bulletproof vests, uh, flak jackets, whatever. And they went in, and there's still firing going on, and then they withdrew. And I thought to myself, all right, you, know, you never want to be the one, especially when you're not law enforcement, when you're not part of a SWAT team. You want to be very careful before you sort of second-guess tactics. But... The mindset here is something that I think we're all out to talk about. And, and when I spoke about this on my show a couple of weeks ago, 
on on the blaze. I asked for anyone out there who has a law enforcement background, specifically on the sort of what we in New York City. I was part of the NYPD Intelligence Division there for a short time. You call ESU Emergency Services Unit, generally referred to as as SWAT, Special Weapons and Tactics. Uh, but somebody with that sort of background, do they think that? This was a a failure of procedure in some way. What happened in Orlando? Was there a failure there? And I can tell you I received numerous responses from people who, based on what they told me and, and what I could sort of gather from the credentials they presented to me uh, as messages, either email or, or private messages, uh, they felt that, yeah, there should be a change in policy and procedure here. That this idea that you could have a police response to a mass shooting and gunfire continuing and people crying out for help inside of this nightclub. And then the police would withdraw. One of the additions to the story, by the way, and this is from NPR, is that there was no talk of a bomb, according to transcripts of police talking to each other. There was no talk of, of a bomb for uh, or explosives of any kind until 50 minutes after the first shots were fired. Police response was within minutes. They had cops on the scene within minutes of the initial gunfire. It's not until almost an hour later that somebody mentions the possibility of explosives. We had initially been told, as you will recall, that police did not want to storm in because they believed the suspect would barricaded himself in and would hit a suicide vest or was going to explode and kill more people. The story needs to get straight here. We need to know what really happened because if we're going to be as effective as possible in not just preventing future attacks, which we'll never be 100% accurate in doing, but in knowing how to respond in those horrific minutes of an attack where every second does count, we should be able to see the American people have a right to know what was done and how this all happened. This is another part of transparency. If law enforcement, as has been reported now, uh, waited while gun while gunfire was continuing to happen inside this nightclub while people were being killed inside the nightclub. Well, they had created a cordon on the outside because they were waiting for more SWAT because they were waiting for I'm not sure what. It, we need to start thinking about what that really means. I've also seen reporting that there were concerns that the p- police ballistic shields might not be able to uh, defeat the uh, the rounds from the as we know the. The semi-automatic rifle is a Sig Sauer um, that he, that Omar Mateen had. Uh, everyone's reporting it as an AR-15, but nonetheless, they were worried about that. Well, if people are inside a nightclub and they're being shot and they have no means of defending themselves, and this is already a situation where you have a terrorist attack underway, you would think the policy has to be stop the threat. Go in and defeat the shooter. It can't be set up a cordon around the outside and hope to open up communications with the shooter and have some sort of a hostage standoff because if he's still firing the gun, you've got to go in. That seems to be where we are now. And I've heard from people with law enforcement. I've talked to people myself with law enforcement backgrounds about this who understand all the risks, who have taken those risks themselves. And they're saying that the old thinking of, okay, you have an active shooter situation, set up a cordon, and let's see what we can figure out about this needs to change. If the gun, if guns are still heard, if there's still active violence happening, it has to be find and eliminate the threat right away. Now, I don't know what that, what role that may play in why the FBI seems so set 
on preventing disclosure of transcripts that involve communications from other law enforcement during the attack. But it certainly seems to be something that we should bring up and think about. We're going to talk about defending the homeland and preventing these kinds of attacks from happening, as well as also trying to limit the casualties from them when they do happen. We need access to the truth of what went down here. So I don't know if it's a question of trying to clean up everything that the, the sort of the, the, the tactical decisions that were made and not wanting anyone to look bad. I don't know. There's a lot of bureaucratic, you know, cover your, cover your behind that goes on in these kinds of situations. That could be a part of it. I don't know. It also could be, and I think this is more likely, that there's this continued pressure from very senior government officials who are making phone calls to other people in the FBI, who tell other people in the FBI who take orders, who are civil servants, who are doing hard jobs and deserve nothing but our respect, but telling them that this is how it's going to go on the transcripts or this is how it's going to go on the request for more information. And the media will turn around and say, the sort of pro-Obama, pro-Clinton media will say, well, you have no evidence of that. How am I going to, how am I going to get evidence of Loretta Lynch telling the FBI director to tell the FBI field agent in charge that this is the way this is going to play out? I can't, but I can surmise, I can analyze, I can use my brain. And I think when we do that, we see that there's a lot that still needs to be answered about what happened in Orlando. Buck Sexton in for Glenn Beck, 888-727-BECK. Back in a few. Glenn Beck. Yeah. Do you want to get away to beautiful Las Colinas, Texas? That sounds nice. Bask in an abnormally large concrete building. Sure, why not? With an inexplicable round window on top? Yeah. Have your shoulders massaged by a heavy-breathing talk show host and his large, manly-esque hands? Ah, well, I don't know about that. Great! What? Oh, it's okay, I don't... It will blow your mind. Oh. If you'll be in Texas and want to attend a taping of the Glenn Beck program, write us. Tickets at glennbeck.com. Massage not included. Lotion sold separately. Mercury. Eight 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 seven two seven Beck. Buck Sexton here, in for Glenn today. Phone lines are open eight 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 seven two seven Beck. Also, you can send me your thoughts as well as what you want me to talk about tomorrow. Because I'm in for Glenn again tomorrow. We'll do some lighter fare on tomorrow's show. I know we've been deep in the uh, in the national security side of things, which means it's pretty intense usually. But uh, tomorrow we'll talk more politics and some other things. Eight 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 seven two seven Beck. Uh, oh, Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. That's where you can go and tell me what you think about today's show or what we should talk about tomorrow. We have uh, Tim in Kansas on the line. Tim, you are on the Glenbeck program. You are speaking to Buck. Hey, Buck. Uh, yes, just listening to you talk about the Orlando shooting and the strategy used by law enforcement. I uh, love law enforcement, but sometimes they don't get it right. I think uh, what we learned in Columbine that we don't wait for a command post to get set up. We don't wait for everything to get set up before we actually take action. Uh, what I'd like you to do is look up the Heston, Kansas uh, shooting at a manufacturing plant where a guy came in with an AK-47 in a manufacturing plant with hundreds of people. The small-town police chief was first on scene, went directly in without regard for his own safety, obviously, knew there was a 70% chance of getting shot. He went in, took down the threat, 
no command post, no strategizing. And I think that's that's what we learned from Columbine way back when. Why it didn't happen in Orlando, I don't know. I'm still wondering when someone's going to explain to me how it could be possible that you've got law enforcement on the scene. Uh, they, they, they've they got long guns, they've got body armor on, and they've got the shooter outnumbered, and he's going around executing people, and they're in a, they're in a cordon outside. After they'd entered the scene and seen what had gone on, they'd seen the, the horrific sight of the bodies on the ground. I mean, gruesome. Uh, yeah, they knew I, what was going on in there. I... I I don't understand how this is possible, and I'll tell you that I, I know that people don't ever want, you don't want to second-guess law enforcement when they're putting their lives on. I understand that. I get that. Um, but I can tell you that other law enforcement personnel that I've spoken to and that have reached out to me are all saying uh, they needed to go in there. And, and this, this is, it's, it's not about blame. It's about preparing for the next one. You know, policy, procedure, whatever it needs to be, if, the, if, if it's an active shooter situation, you got to make it an inactive shooter situation. You've got to go after the threat. I don't see how you can. I don't see where where what else the op, what other uh, options there really are other than waiting, which is what happened in Orlando. Right, right. And I guarantee you, the the guys in Orlando, the SWAT team members, they were ready to go in. They're probably going crazy, ready to go in. But I think bureaucracy took over on the sudden emergency scene. There's no place for bureaucracy and and order. Yeah. But- did did the SWAT guys in Orlando get sort of a stand down order from the top of I mean, a temporary stand down order? But were they told you know hold back, hold back? I mean, if that's the case, I, you know I understand this. Nobody wants to be the one. I mean, it's it, but this isn't about pointing fingers at people or anything else. This is about saying, okay, well, how can we make sure that the next time a jihadist tries to kill a lot of people, we don't have lots of law enforcement officers on the uh, officers on the scene not really doing very much while that's happening. We need to avoid that in the future. All right, Tim, I appreciate you calling in. Good to have you uh, on the show. This is Buck in for Glenn. Back in a few. You're listening to the Glenn Beck Program. Mercury. Buck Sexton here in for Glenn. I do a show every day for the Blaze Radio Network. You can download it at theblaze.com slash Buck Sexton or on SoundCloud, on iTunes, on Stitcher. Just type in my name, Buck Sexton, and then you can check it out. Please do. Uh, Also, you can send me your thoughts about today's show or tomorrow's show in advance if you want. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Foxnews.com has this one. Uh, This is one of these stories where you think about it, you read about it for a second, and you say to yourself, um, hold on a second. The FEC voted to, then the Federal Election Commission, I said we'd get to this, and I kind of got diverted because sometimes I get a little freestyle and I forget where I am. But the FEC, uh, the Federal Election Commission, in a decision that's being made public today, voted last month to punish Fox News over criteria changes for the network's first Republican presidential primary, but were blocked by Republican commissioners, end quote there from Fox. So you got a bunch of Democrats sitting on the Federal Election Commission. And they thought that they should cast their vote 
to punish, to sanction Fox News. Because why, you say? What what terrible thing has Fox done here? What has Fox done that would be uh, that would be worthy of you know, the FEC stepping in and holding them to account? Well, uh, they decided, this is just the Democrats on the commission, of course. It ended up being split 3-3, so the censure will not go through. There will not be... Uh, there will not be any action taken from this, but it just goes to show you what's bubbling. Just not even it's beneath the surface makes it sound like it's not a problem. But I mean, what's sort of percolating? What's happening in some of these bureaucracies? The sort of partisanship that you should come to expect from them. The three Democrats were split uh, with the three Republicans who voted on taking no action against Fox. But what did Fox do? It split the debate into ten and seven. Right there were the sort of ten main uh, main candidates on the stage and they had the undercard debate the kids table as it was called which was not nice people but that's what people were calling it i remember that i had to come from a pretty sizable family and we used to have to have the kids table and the you know the the, the big boy table uh, for ladies obviously too um we would drink martinelli's sparkling cider at the kid table while everyone else got to drink alcohol so uh if they chose so there's that uh but anyway they, they broke this down into 10 and 7 and that was a problem because they were saying that it turned, it was, it was essentially like a don it was like they were donating to the candidates. It, it makes no, it makes no sense whatsoever. Um, they, I, I, I don't even, their logic here is, is faulty, but it just goes to show you, um, it goes to show you what they're willing to do, uh, that they will use whatever government power they have to advance political causes, even for what should be explicitly, obviously nonpartisan situations. That is, in fact, what they, here we go. It was called a, a, a complaint subsequently filed with the FEC claimed that the changes that Fox News made were tantamount to a, an illegal corporate contribution to the candidates on stage. Okay, hold on a second, everybody. If the way the media covers something... Across the board, Fox or anybody else, if the way the media covers something is a campaign contribution, we got to rethink this whole thing. Oh, but hold on a second. Isn't that why it's so bizarre when they talk about campaign finance reform? It stops private citizens from doing certain things, from it's uh, from in, using their First Amendment rights, for example, limiting their First Amendment rights, you know, other campaign finance reform. We've got to get dark money out of politics. We've got to find a way to stop the billionaires from funding Republicans. Oh, did you hear that? I heard the, the Koch brothers were involved. Oh, and everyone gets, oh, the left gets so scared. I mean, first of all, they're, of course, they're billionaire donors to the Democrats as well. Um, but. That's that's neither here nor there, because if you're looking for consistency for the Democrats, you're going to be searching for quite a long time. That's not going to change anytime soon either. Uh, but the mainstream media networks that are out there, ABC, CBS, NBC, uh, and all the rest, they're allowed to have whatever institutional biases they want. They're allowed to help out whatever candidates they want by the way they cover things, how much time they give them, and all the rest of it. And how they depict... People are talking about equal time. Forget about that. How they depict the various candidates. What kind of interviews they give them. How, how do you police this? How would you judge? Well, there are some people, as you see from these FEC commissioners, there are some who think that they have a right to police this, that they have a right to make these determinations one way or the other, that it shouldn't be left up to just free speech and people being able to discuss these things as they see fit and promote their ideas and their candidates. No, no, no. 
they want to say that the way Fox structures its Republican debate is somehow illegal, violation of law. Um, and you can see this sort of crazy, uh, politicized, bureaucratic nonsense running amok with the John Doe investigations in Wisconsin. That was all about campaign coordination. You, you, when, you, when you leave these sorts of things open, and sometimes they can have criminal sanctions. And by the way, speaking of John Doe in Wisconsin, and if any of you don't know what I'm talking about, it's very much worth doing a quick uh, Google search on it to see how there were some power-mad prosecutors there who were using an obscure state law to try and terrify people and harm the Scott Walker uh, efforts to beat the uh, sort of campaign to remove him. And they wanted to get somebody in Walker's office originally, and they were using tactics that any normal American should be appalled at what was going on there. No real sanctions against those prosecutors, able to do whatever they want, you know, just pre-dawn raids on people's homes because they're accused of campaign collusion. Nobody was ever actually charged with that, by the way. Um, But this is what happens. In order to, by the way, make examples of people, they charged some low-level bureaucrats who were in some way either affiliated with or attached to the Walker campaign with with serious criminal charges, with felonies. They tried to. They were, charges were uh, uh, lessened in order to take a deal. But keep that in mind. When people say, oh, Hillary, the server, the email, all that stuff, it's not a big deal. Well, for other people, it would be a huge deal. And the message that it sends to all Americans when the rule of law is not applied to those who are most powerful in our government and therefore should be held to the highest standards of law, the message that sends is, is terrible um, and, and really undermines rule of law, undermines our freedoms, undermines all the things that make this country what it is. But I digress. So back to Fox. Think about this. There are people in the FEC who believe that they should be able to determine how a um, they should be able to determine how Fox structures its debates, and they should use the power of government to punish them. Otherwise, I mean, this is just the sort of nonsense that you can expect from the left here. Now, it didn't go through. I'm curious to see when I can read through the actual decision what their sort of reasoning is for all this. But whenever somebody brings up, whenever someone talks about Fairness doctrine or, oh, they don't really want to police the First Amendment. or That's not true. They do. Progressives do want to tell you what you can and cannot say and write and put out there and speak on radio or anywhere else for that matter. They do want to seize control with government force of the conversation. Just look at the Citizens United decision. You can't make a mean movie about Hillary close to an election. That's what Citizens United was all about. Does that mean you could ban a mean book about Hillary before the election, too? Well, to be consistent, the leftist progressives, the liberals, as they improperly call themselves and are called by all the rest of us, unfortunately, because they've taken the name. uh, The answer was, yeah, sure, you can ban a book. Ban a book. I mean, what, what bad things has that ever led to? That was what the Democrats were in favor of. Many of them still are. The ones in the FEC... I wonder what their take on the whole Citizens United First Amendment case would be. We know if they could punish Fox News, they would. Buck Sexton here in for Glenn, 888-727-BECK. Back in a few. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Mercury.
Glenn Beck Program. Buck Sexton in for in for Glenn today. We are joined now by Sean Van Diver. He is a Navy veteran and chief operating officer of the Three Wise Men Veterans Foundation. Going to tell us a bit about what Three Wise Men does. Uh, thank you for calling in, Sean. Good to talk to you. You too, Buck. Thanks for having me. So please give us some of the backstory here. Well, what is Three's, uh, Three Wise Men Veterans Foundation? Sure. So uh, Three Wise Men was founded in uh, in 2014, uh, in September 2014, uh, in advance of Veterans Day that year, because uh, the uh, and it's named in, in honor of uh, Jeremy Ben and Bo Wise, um, three three Wise brothers, two of which uh, Jer- Jeremy was a Navy SEAL, Ben was a Army Green Beret, and Bo is a Marine Corps um, Marine Corps instrument today. The organization was founded by their cousin Nathan Fletcher, who was a, uh, a state assemblyman here in California. And he was looking for a way to, to, to give back. Um, his Tragically, Jeremy was lost in December 2009 to a suicide bomber in Afghanistan. And uh, Nathan worked a lot with, with Ben, uh, Ben, the next brother in line, um, kind of working through the, the issues that come after you lose your brother and, and telling him, like, hey, man, you're the, you're the, you're the man of the house now. You've got to take care of your family. Um, he did a really good job of that. He did a really good job for two years and 15 days. Um, and then he was killed in Afghanistan um, in a shootout. And uh, so Nathan, Nathan was struggling to try to figure out how to give back and, and remember his remember his brother or remember his cousins. And uh, and he wanted to leverage his 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 name idea and his ability to to raise money and help veterans. So so Three Wise Men was founded initially as an organization to raise money and give it away to other organizations. And it has since evolved. Into a, into an advocacy organization where we fight for folks who, who can't fight for themselves. We we uh, we kind of go in three areas: advocacy, awareness, and alliances. And uh, and we can talk a little bit more about that later. Yeah, well, pl- please tell me what are what are some of the, the policy areas? And you said fight for people who can't fight for themselves. How are you fighting for them? What is Three Wise Men doing? Sure. So the uh, the big thing that we're doing right now is we just on Monday we released our, our first public service announcement. Um, it's it's called Make the Call, the hashtag Make the Call campaign. Um, you know, studies have shown that consistently uh, that up to half of the veterans who suffer from PTSD will seek help and treatment, right? So only half will seek help or treatment. Uh, this is primarily due to the stigmas associated with mental health injuries and unseen wounds of war. So our, our campaign seeks to tackle this stigma directly by having veterans hearing the message from other veterans. So it features service members who served in Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, and other conflict zones. Uh, sharing they struggle with PTS, they, then they sought help and are now stronger because of it. And and uh, you said uh, make the so these are people who are n- now they're, they're you're doing are you going on Capitol Hill? Are you lobbying? What kind of things are you doing sure. to try to get more? I mean, you're bringing attention to these causes, but what are some things you'd like to see enacted? Sure. So uh, we're we're fighting for a few of the uh, a few issues here in California. We we sought to so here in California. Uh, as around in many uh, states around the country, the National Guard adopts the UCMJ with with some um, with some changes. So uh, here in California, our our UCMJ said that our, our California National Guard regulations said that suicide was a crime. So people could be, and there were some that had been kicked out after uh, attempting suicide, rather than brought closer into the fold and taken care of. So. So we've supported a bill that that effectively changes that. Uh, we're working with some members on, on Capitol Hill uh, for for some potential um, 
some potential bills for this cycle next. Um, one of the one of which we're talking about is is a bill that would put an automatic review on anybody who was kicked out under a dishonorable bad, bad conduct discharge. Um, so we're we're encouraging lawmakers to to take a look at that and and adopt it. And I think it, it seems like DOD is going to be able to make the change without congressional help, but there there remains a bill. So Sean, anybody who's listening right now who wants to uh, help, volunteer, just learn more about what you're doing, where should they go? They should go to 3wm.org. Uh, they can watch the video there. They can sign up. They can donate. Um, every For every $100, we can get 20,000 impressions on Facebook and and for our video, and, and it goes up from there. And uh, and we're, we're running this not only on Facebook and YouTube, but on TV stations around the country. So every little bit will help, and we appreciate everyone's help out there in the, in the gun bike universe. Sean, thank you very much for your service, and thank you for the work you're doing for uh, 3wm.org, 3 Wise Men Veterans Foundation. Appreciate you calling in to tell us about it. Thanks so much, Buck. Have a great day. You too. Um, so, you know, we actually had uh, so it's a very, very important work uh, being done uh, by, um, by Sean and, and the rest of the team at, at 3WM. I actually saw them, at an, I saw Sean at, at an event uh, that I was attending in D.C. Uh, just what was it last week for an organization that's trying to get interpreters out of Iraq and Afghan out of Iraq and Afghanistan called No One Left Behind. Get them out and also help them uh, integrate and and be successful uh, here in America when they're made uh, permanent residents. Uh, they're doing fantastic work and uh, another very important No One Left Behind. You can look at their mission, learn more about them. Founded by a, a good friend of mine. Uh, and, a, and a former colleague of mine. Um, and uh, you can also learn more about the Three Wiseman Foundation at 3wm.org. Um, we had somebody on as well before we went into the break who was saying they were from SWAT and we're going to talk about the tactics and, and Orlando. So maybe we'll be, have a chance to get into that some more tomorrow. Anyone listening who falls in that category, if you have some thoughts on Orlando tactics and procedures, would really like to hear from you because... Uh, that's something that I think we'll be talking more about in the days and weeks ahead. Uh, really appreciate you all joining me today while I'm uh, guest hosting here in Fort Glen. I'll be back tomorrow at 9 to 12 Eastern across the country. So please do tune in. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton for your thoughts. Until tomorrow. Thanks a lot, everybody. See you then. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Mercury.